Hello, and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. Later on today's episode, we'll speak to former member of Knesset Stav Shafir about Israel's foreign relations, the occupation, and the chance for a green political revolution in Israel. But first of all... You can go In recent years, there has been a growing wave of Aliyah, immigration to Israel from South Africa. People from the country's Jewish community are finding a new home in Israel. And among this growing group of immigrants, there is an incredible story about converts to Judaism from the Afrikaner community in South Africa that are also coming here to Israel, finding a new home. Hello, Judy Maltz. Hi, Amir. Great to have you here with us. And you wrote a fascinating story for us, Haaretz.com, about this phenomenon just this weekend. How common is it, immigration after conversion into Judaism, of people from the Afrikaner community in South Africa? Look, it's not a mass phenomena, but it is a phenomena. The fact that it's happening at all, I found very, very interesting. And the fact that it's happening in growing numbers in recent years. How many people are we talking about? So I think we're talking about, in the past 20 years, about 200, 300 people who have come. Some of them are big clans, families. They're coming with their kids and their uh, daughters-in-law and sons-in-law and grandchildren. And this was something that was virtually non-existent during the apartheid years. I mean, you did have Afrikaner people who converted to Judaism, but really the only reason they did it in during the apartheid years so that they would be able to marry a Jewish person because there were many rabbis there who would not marry them otherwise. But these are people who are not doing it to get married. And also, they're doing what they consider to be the real thing, orthodox conversions that can sometimes take two, three, four years. So it's not an issue of them trying to escape South Africa and to come to Israel as part of the law of return, because as you know, converts can make aliyah, but they would have been able to do that by converting through a reform uh, rabbi. You're saying if it, was, if it was only about leaving South Africa, there are easier ways to do it. Exactly. This is a different story. This is a different story. These people, they're kind of the equivalent of evangelicals in the United States. They don't call themselves evangelicals, but they are very, very, very religious Christians. They take the Bible very, very literally. In general, it's a more conservative religious population. Not, of course, everyone. We don't want to make vast generalizations, but looking at the broad picture. That's right. That's right. Now, I'm not aware of any phenomena of evangelicals in the United States converting to Judaism, but I imagine if they would, they would go the orthodox way rather than through reform Judaism. If you're already doing it, do it Seriously, maybe that would be their view. Exactly, yeah. And why is it happening now? Why are these people converting to Judaism and moving their families and their lives to the state of Israel? So I think, yeah, it, it's not a good time in South Africa now. You know, many people say the country is really falling apart. You know, why are the Jews leaving? Okay, if you are white and the Jews are considered to be white, Many whites there don't see opportunity. So for Jews, there is the possibility of going to Israel. 
and, as, and as you've written for us there, and what we mentioned in the beginning of this conversation, apart from the phenomenon we are discussing today, there's also a very impressive wave of Aliyah immigration from South Africa to Israel in general. Right. This is part of a bigger story. Right. There's, I would guess, I guess you could call it white flight from, from South Africa now, because, you know, the economy is in a really bad state. There's massive unemployment there. So... Whoever can leave and is leaving. Mm-hmm. Now for these Christians, there's, there's also uh, this religious factor. Uh, as, as one person explained to me, prior to 1948, there was this idea that God had put the Jewish people in exile, so he was not happy with them. And therefore, these people felt very confident in their Christianity. But once the Jews returned from exile and had their own state, they started feeling, well, maybe the Jews were right after all. Maybe they're onto something, those Jews. (laughs) Right, right. So that could explain why many of them are coming. Um, You'll find that a, a lot of these people are farmers, And um, when they do come to Israel, they go to places where there are big open spaces. And that's one of the reasons, just one, uh, that we're seeing many of them going to uh, West Bank settlements where they get a lot of land and they can engage in farming. And, of course, it also suits their ideology, which is that God gave the entire land of Israel to the Jewish people and why they call it Judea and Samaria and etc. I have a million more questions for you, Judy, but let's listen to one story of a couple that converted to Judaism, moved to Israel, and recently got married here in Ranana. Theo? Hi, my name is Theo Creel. My Hebrew name is Shai El Moshe Creel. I was born in Limpopo province in South Africa, in Lutechart, but I lived most of my life in George, in the Garden Route. I've been in Israel since July 2019, and what I like the most about living in Israel is that there is synagogues everywhere, so it's very easy to catch a minyan as well as that almost everything in Israel is kosher. So it's very easy for someone that is religious to live in Israel. One of the challenges I found in Israel is adapting to the culture. Because in Israel, not everyone has terech eretz. Not everyone has the same concept of what manners should be. And I believe strongly that even with the cultural differences, every Jew should make aliyah to Israel to possess the land that was promised to them by Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Shalom. So this couple, unlike some of the people you interviewed, they are not living in the West Bank in a settlement, but much closer to our studio in Tel Aviv in Ranana. Mm-hmm. Although Theo did say that if it were not because of for work constraints, he would have loved to live out, and he does not like the use, to use the term West Bank, in Judea and Samaria. So th- that's a very interesting uh, case. Uh, Theo was someone who was interested in religions 
as a whole and had studied all different sort of religions eventually came to see uh, or to believe that the truth was in Judaism. He started an Orthodox conversion, then that he thought it was a bit too much, went to reform, thought that was too little, finally went back to orthodoxy, took him quite a few years. And then he says he was back in Cape Town and would have stayed there because he had a good life there. He, he had a company and he had a nice flat and uh, he just couldn't find a nice Orthodox girl. He said he had dated all the girls in Cape Town and <laughs> what was he supposed to do? So the members of the community said, you should go to Israel. You'll find a nice girl there. And when he did come to Israel, he uh, started this YouTube channel where he would start advising people who wanted to convert and, and move to Israel. And through this YouTube channel, he found a family that wanted to come to Israel, and he ended up marrying their youngest daughter, who just recently converted. So the advice worked. Yes. Now, another fascinating story that you mentioned in the article is that of a former Christian pastor who is now preparing to make Aliyah as a Jew to Israel. Let's listen to him. Hi, my name is Gidon Lagrange. I was born in Cape Town, South Africa, and my wife and I now live in Port Elizabeth, a beautiful harbor city in the south of the country. We plan to move to Israel in Renana uh, very soon. I was asked uh, what I'm looking forward to most. Well, definitely the people and the land, and of course, to be with our children and grandchildren again. And a second question, what worries me a bit? I'm sure we'll be facing many new challenges and I think finding our own new home where we can live life to its fullest would be the number one challenge and maybe learning to speak a new language at our age. I'm sure, Judy, when you started working on this story, which by itself is uh, incredible, you didn't think you'd run into this specific story. No, that was uh, quite amazing. Uh, this man had a congregation of more than 500 members and um, had been a very, very devout Christian. And just as he explained it, it's just one day he started questioning everything he believed and he started learning more and more about Judaism and he said that uh, really was a better fit for him than this Christianity that he had been brought up in and in fact his wife felt the same way and two of their three children ended up converting and they are both already here in Israel one son in Ranana and a daughter in Beit Shemesh and they are planning to come to Israel in November. Incredible. And you have another interviewee who is planning to make Aliyah, I think, next week. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let's listen to her story. Hi, my name is Celtia Lorge. I was born in the coastal city of Port Elizabeth in South Africa. My husband and I are Besrat Hashem, making Aliyah on the 12th of October. What I am looking forward to most about living in Israel is to dwell in the land of hope, being part of this amazing nation to live by the Jewish calendar without being frowned upon and feeling isolated, to be able to buy kosher food everywhere. What worries me a bit is finding a job and earning an income, learning the Hebrew language, and the really hard thing to do is leaving my grandchild behind. But as Psalm 27 says, 
Had I not trusted that I would see the goodness of Hashem in the land of life, hope to Hashem, strengthen yourself and He will give you courage and hope to Hashem. What were some of the reactions that you received to this story after we ran it on Haaretz last week? Well, I was uh, a little bit concerned about the reactions because I knew there would be probably a lot of people out there who would pounce on this and say, ah, yeah, these were the founders of the apartheid system and Israel's an apartheid state. So it no all fits into a narrative if you want to make it. Right, exactly. So several of the people I interviewed for the piece did contact me after, and they were very happy uh, that their stories were told. And um, I don't think they read into it what some of the others on social media were reading into it. Yeah, well, the good thing is we don't work for Twitter. Do you think this kind of phenomenon could happen among Christian communities elsewhere in the world, or is this a very unique South African story? I think it's a unique South African story right now because, as I said before, life is not that good in South Africa right now. I don't see evangelicals in America starting to convert to Judaism and move to Israel. Well, especially that in Israel there is a vaccine mandate, uh, a green passport, and that's not so popular in some evangelical communities in America, right? That's right. That's right. And how are these new olim uh, received in the wider South African Jewish olim community in Israel? Well, the fact that such a, a relatively large number of them are going to Ranana, I think that says something, because Ranana is a very much an, an ole community. You have uh, a lot of, especially English-speaking uh, immigrants who go there and have over the years. And, and many, many South Africans. So they're going there because they apparently feel that they will be welcome there, and they're staying there. And quite a few of them did tell me that they belong to the synagogue, which is known as the South African Synagogue. I'm not sure they would have felt as welcome in the communities they came from in South Africa, the Jewish communities. Several of them did say that, there, yes, there are uh, Jewish communities near where they live, but they're not orthodox enough for them. Well, it's uh, a lot of times like that, right, that people who convert take a harsher uh, look at some religious issues, and that's yes. by itself a fascinating phenomenon. You know, to me, South African Olim is also a bit of a personal story. My grandparents uh, did uh, work encouraging Aliyah in South Africa in the 1950s, but back then it was seen more as a left-wing uh, Aliyah. It was uh, young Jews, a lot of them actually who were angry at apartheid South Africa and wanted to leave the country and looked for something different in Israel. Yeah, and so that's uh, very true that the, the South African Jewish community uh, as a whole has gravitated much more to the right in recent years, th those who have stayed there much larger share of the South African Jewish Olim who are coming are Orthodox and right-wing, and um, many of them do go to the, to the settlements. Well, if you haven't read Judy's great article, uh, and are now after you listened to our conversation, you probably do want to read it. You can find it on haarts.com. Judy Malt, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on the show. And after the break, we'll have former member of Knesset Stav Shafir here with us. And hello to former member of Knesset Stav Shafir. 
Chairwoman of the Israeli Green Party. Hi, Amir. Thanks for being with us today. Great to be here. So Prime Minister Naftali Bennett uh, returned last week from his first appearance before the UN General Assembly. And in Israel and abroad, there was a lot of discussion over the fact that he completely ignored the Palestinian issue in his speech, didn't mention it at all. Maybe the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is over? Maybe it was solved and nobody told us? Well, that would be great. I think if, if we're ignoring reality, so we can pretend the conflict doesn't exist and we can pretend that there aren't almost 3 million Palestinians in the West Bank and, 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 and in Gaza, and we can just try to act as if uh, things are normal, but we all know it's not normal. And more than that, the conflict is influencing everything that's happening here. Um, including our our society, not just security uh, matters that that you know come and go and sometimes it becomes easier at some parts of the country to to ignore them, not everywhere. Um, people in the south sadly uh, suffer from it all the time ongoingly. Yes uh, but it also influences our society and it also of course influences the relationships that we have. Here in the region and with the US and we saw what happened during the vote on the Iron Dome uh, budget which has a direct influence from the conflict something that Israel cannot ignore and I hope that Bennett will stop ignoring so you recently wrote an article for us at Haaretz looking at the new government's foreign policy and what is actually different or sadly the same from the previous government specifically on this issue on the Palestinian front how much is this approach by Bennett a continuation of his predecessors foreign policy and look at the at the conflict well first of all I think we um, have to look at the bright side of what happened in the past few months so we like that let's start with that in the <laughs> <laughs> now because that that's something great happened that Netanyahu is no longer prime minister and More and more doors of uh, international leaders are open widely to the new leadership of Israel, to Bennett and Yair Lapid. There is a wave of optimism uh, in the foreign ministry. Uh, and, and I think Lapid is doing a great job reconnecting uh, to places that were ignored or um, connections that were weakened during the time of Bibi in the ministry. And of course, the ministry... Of foreign affairs itself um, yeah, when you said when you said places that were ignored yeah, exactly. before countries <laughs> I thought first of all the Israeli foreign ministry was ignored and now exactly. it's relevant for a decade long um, and suffered from a lack of budget and a lack of strategy for a very long time so a lot of good things happened however I think we cannot ignore what happened last week in Congress we have and in, in the past decade and a half Netanyahu created an image for Israel that That is like the image of his own. Um, Israel is perceived amongst many Americans and uh, Europeans as a picture of Bibi, very right wing, very much in stagnation when it comes to the conflict and to dealing with our um, security uh, interest. Netanyahu made Israel a political issue in the US, uh, connected with Trump, neglected uh, the Democrats. had fights with Obama the, the Republican senator from Jerusalem exactly as as you know some sometimes we <laughs> we realize that maybe that's that's what he always wanted to be uh, <laughs> uh, and that situation has consequences today there is a young generation in American politics that feels disconnected from Israel at the same time the boycott movement grew tremendously Netanyahu as a Prime Minister invested hundreds of thousands of millions of shekels in um, fight, allegedly fighting the BDS, the boycott movement. 
I always suspected that that was not in order to really fight the BDS, but actually to strengthen uh, what Netanyahu perceived as an enemy that can help his interests. So there is Iran with the bomb, Hamas, Hezbollah, and now we also have this other f- scary, frightening phenomenon that we can talk about endlessly. Which is the boycott, yeah. Yes. And not only that, that scary phenomenon, the boycott, is in the right wing's interest um, because of a few reasons. First of all, it creates a sense here in Israel amongst Israelis that the international community does not understand Everybody is against us. Yeah, they're against us. They don't understand our security needs. They don't think that we have the right to be here. And fear always pushes people farther to the right. So that helped Bibi in that sense. The other thing is actually much more, much more based in funding. The boycott movement... Um, creates a boycott amongst progressives and Democrats against Israel. So the connections that Democrats and progressives here have with the international community are being weakened by it. However, on the other side, on the right wing, connections are only being strengthened. Uh, so Netanyahu and the right wing, the settlement movement, get an enormous amount of funding uh, and support from uh, right wing Americans, from the evangelical community. Yes. Um, and some other uh, communities that are very well connected here. And their political initiative here, being the settlements and being supporting the right and supporting the move of Israel farther to the right economically and socially, is heavily supported by those right-wing Americans. To that cause, the BDS also helped Netanyahu. So those who were disconnected were actually peacemakers in Israel. It's the Israeli left that suffers um, from the boycott movement. It's not really the Israeli right. So if we're looking at the new government's foreign policy in a broad view, one thing that you mentioned that did happen is that the ministry that was supposed to, again, you know, supposedly deal with BDS and got all those uh, hundreds of millions of shekels, the strategic affairs ministry has been shut down. I mean, you probably look at that as a positive development. No, of course, that was a completely pointless ministry that all they did was to weaken the, the, the foreign ministry and to take more and more money for right-wing political agenda. But a counter-argument can be that what happened in Congress when there was the small progressive faction that blocked temporarily the vote on the Iron Dome and caused the panic here, well, maybe that actually proves we need that ministry. Maybe instead of shutting it down, they should have doubled its budget. We don't need another ministry. We need strategy. And we need to change the way that we confront that issue of the conflict and, and in general, um, Israel, Israel's foreign, foreign policy. It is not wise and not only not wise, but it doesn't make any sense to ignore the new generation of American politics and the new generation of progressives. First of all, with all the anger that there is now regarding that vote, there are also many issues that we have in common as a global community and as a global community of young people in politics. We all feel that climate change is is one of the most important and urgent matters that we have to deal with. We all understand that we need to change the way that our um, social economic systems uh, were built. Social democracy as an agenda became much more strong uh, in the past year following COVID crisis. So there are, and of course, the crisis of democracy that we feel globally in relation to technology, to social media, are all challenges that we have to confront together. And then there is peacemaking. So we all share the um, interest in peace, those of us who are on the left. 
But what I see amongst the, um, that group of progressive, I mean, led by um, AOC and the group of, of, of young progressives in, in the Democratic Party, is that for some reason they perceive progressiveness differently. Some of them are not willing to talk to us. As Have you tried personally to engage, for example, with some of these members of Congress or activists as a young Israeli politician on the progressive side and been rejected or just met with disinterest? Yes, with some of them it was uh, possible to talk but not to make it public. They were mm-hmm. very much afraid of some kind of backlash around of pro-Palestinian supporters that they have over there and they're pushing them um, to not speak to Israelis. But that is something that I feel is just extremely unprogressive. To be a progressive means that you can understand and you're willing to understand the complex and more, a more complex picture. Of reality is that you see the two sides you understand that there is a very complicated situation within this conflict and you're willing to help those who are pro-peace boycott supporters I'm afraid are not really pro-peace they're trying to boycott one side not listen to the full picture and they're not helping those of us who are here and and who are trying to fight for peace and that's exactly the problem and that's what I try to explain to them when I had a The opportunity of, of, of talking to them and seeing how how much they're afraid of making it public and how much they're afraid of making an of creating an open conversation about this made me realize that we have a long way to go now that's where I think that Israel has to change the way it sees it uh, strategically for the past decades Israel didn't show any initiative and that's a problem for Where there is only one side that's showing to the world it's regardless of what we think here about the amount of times that the Palestinians refused an agreement with Israel the amount of I mean the offers that that they got through uh, uh, history and, and could sign agreement it didn't work we know all of that outside internationally it seems like there is one side that wants to a two-state solution, another side, we, Israelis, were against it. We are seeing, you're saying, as the rejectionist. As the rejectionist. And that's not true. 60% of Israelis are pro-two-state solution. Even after almost 40 years straight of right-wing policy in government, 60% want a two-state solution. What, what is missing is an initiative. And I think that Bennett, even though he is, in a way, trapped by uh, his former ideology. By, his, by himself, really. Uh, yeah, I think his ideology is, is a little bit more flexible than it seems, but he is still trying to, to flatter his um, previous supporters. I don't know how many of them are still supporting him after he yes. got into the government, but that's a whole different thing. Um, and he will not want to initiate uh, something different, but I feel that's the only way that we have in order to move forward, even if it's a modest way. initiative just imagine that just imagine that Israel will make the same noise and the same festival that he did with the BDS with the boycott movement but just around peace with the Palestinians around the regional the initiative. same efforts the same publicity yes, the same exactly. speeches and statements and maybe even some practical steps exactly making it obvious to everyone that that's what we want think about the same thing that we I mean Israel can make can create awareness around issues let's go this way when we have one of our biggest struggles and threats being Iran has become a global issue um, sadly that's that's another point where our strategy was not but when Netanyahu's strategy was the wrong one and now we see the result of that but just imagine if we started to perform and create that uh, move that initiative forward around peace and around the regional collaboration and That includes an agreement with the Palestinians or if to be 
more modest than that. Yeah, because I that, don't see Bennett tomorrow morning giving a Sadat speech. I agree with you. But what's the more modest proposal then? A stop of, of expanding settlements, starting to take um, small steps towards the future two-state solution, which is the only solution that everybody from the security system and to most of our political system today supports, and again, that has broad support amongst Israelis. But there is another way to move forward, and it's not just the formal initiative that we need to present. I think we also have to act informally, and that's by creating these relationships with the progressive side of the U.S. And we can create them not only with politicians and with um, diplomats, but with people. I mean, diplomacy has changed. It's not the way that it used to be. Today, diplomacy can be made on Twitter or TikTok. What I'm saying is that we cannot neglect these connections. And although maybe this government... is not going to be the most loved government or admired government by the progressive side of American politics. However, they do have partners here. They have allies. They have people here on the left who want to see peace, who want to fight for it, who are fighting against racism all the time, who are fighting for democracy. And if they will see that group of people as their colleagues, as people that they can work with, so there will be an alternative to boycotts. There will be something that we can work on together while strengthening Israeli-American bonds uh, as they always used to be. I do want to ask you also about climate change, but one last question on the main issue of diplomacy. When you look at the broader picture that we just discussed here, is it more a problem that we have with what we call here in Israel Hasbara, explaining ourselves, making our case, or is it really just a policy problem that we are not making any concrete steps on the Palestinian front and everybody sees that? Well, you know, every time I, I, I travel to American universities to give talks about Israel and try to strengthen the, the connection that we have with them, I see some of these efforts to present, especially in the universities that you are perceived more hostile. You mean the Hasbara efforts? Yeah, make, exactly. Like mm-hmm. showing how, what great falafel we have and what great technology. The best beaches. It's extremely old-fashioned. I mean, we are proud Israelis. We know the, the beauty of this country and the beauty of its people. And we wish that everybody in the world will understand it. However, that's not the way that you convince people who disagree with you. To just love you. It doesn't work this way. They, they disagree with us on matters that on, we need on to respond to. On real issues. Yeah, real issues that we need to respond to directly and not hide from. And the truth is with us. I mean, we have, um, and it's not just about explaining how many times we tried to make peace and it didn't work because of the Palestinians, because that will also not work. It's our narrative that... They have their own story, which, by the way, can also sound pretty convincing when you hear it laid out in front of you. Yes, exactly. And, but we have something different. We can show what we were planning to do for the future, but for that we have to be serious. So it means we have to show Israel support, Israelis support, even if it's not the government, but Israeli support for a two-state solution. We have to show the people here who work for peace and dedicate their lives to it. And we have to show that many of these people actually live just next to Gaza in the southern Israel and suffer for the past 20 years from, from rockets being shot at them by Hamas. So we have, we have a case. Our case is that inside Israel, there is an internal dilemma or an internal argument between those who are pro-state solution and those who are against it. And we need to show and offer Americans who are pro-peace and want to see an end to the conflict that they, if they want to ha- help that, they need to connect 
to those here who, who, who try to work for that. And that would be the most effective and efficient thing that they can do. So it's not boycotting us, it's helping us to, to reach peace. And for those who are now thinking, yeah, but why should Americans be involved or the international community be involved in internal Israeli matters? So that could be a legit argument, yeah, uh, maybe the, a long time ago, but they are involved. <laughs> anybody who watched Trump and Netanyahu exactly. during the, the Trump years know that this is a, a dead issue. They are involved and the settlements get billions of shekels uh, in donations and help from abroad, um, from their political allies. And, uh, and Israeli right wing, exactly. And Israeli um, right wing agenda gets tons of money uh, from supporters in the US. So to say that the American community is not involved would be a lie. And if they're already involved, it's better for them to be involved in helping peacemaking. Uh, Last uh, thing I want to touch on, most of our listeners know you as a former member of Knesset of the Labour Party. Uh, today you are the chairwoman of the Israeli Green Party, which right now is not represented in the Knesset. You saw what happened last week in Germany. When is that coming to Very Israel? Very proudly, yes. Well, I think the, the, the revolution in the way that green issues are perceived is already happening. It happens amongst a different generation than the generation that is now in politics. Um, so if you ask any young person in Israel, any 14 or 15 year old, what they think is the most important matter, they will probably tell you climate change. Not what we discussed for the last 15 minutes, <laughs> unfortunately, maybe for... But you know, you know I think it's all, you we think. discussed international collaboration, so international collaboration is the only way forward also when it comes to green matters. So I believe within a few years we will see it entering Israeli politics very strongly, and I hope that... and I. Maybe not even a few years, maybe even next year. Well, it depends um, when the next election is, I guess. No, but it's not just about elections. It's about the perception of politicians. So green matters, because Israel is, always perceives its political priorities as, coming, as, as putting security first, of course, and, and the most urgent matters, and then um, our economy and environment is completely put on the side. It's, it's it was perceived for many years like a, like a privilege. Like, if we didn't have so many more urgent matters that so we could touch on environment. However, we see more and more in the last few years that it's just impossible to ignore. And I believe we will see the change coming from municipal elections. We will see more and more leadership, local communities leading change on green issues locally in the next elections. And then I hope it will get back into national politics. And if we'll be creative with that, And you just mentioned a few questions ago how the Asbara efforts work abroad. So I think what Israel can create its strategy, its foreign strategy outside of security matters, it would be green matters because Israel's technology on environment and Israel's possibilities for collaboration with our neighboring countries on environment are crucial You're for our future. You're talking about like uh, uh, energy, for example? Energy, water, pollution, all very urgent matters here in the Middle East and basis for collaboration, collaboration that we can also make peace together with. And we know that in order to create a sustainable uh, future agreement with the Palestinians and with every other country, the only way to make it sustainable is by creating very, very strong bonds on the business side, on the environmental side, uh, on the economic side. If we create these bonds and we create mutual dependency And, and, and collaboration around, around these causes, we will be able to become more sustainable also when it comes to our security. 
So yes, so I see all of this, all of these different issues very much connected. So it's, it's two in one, you make peace and you save the world, basically. <laughs> okay, Stav Shafil, thank you. That's a great way, that's a great way to end the podcast. I have the campaign for you. All right, well, thank you, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. And thank you to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and of course, to you, listeners. We'll be back here on Friday with another episode of Arts Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.